Last Sunday, we learned about the first church in history. Jerusalem church was born on the day of Pentecost. They were mother church who lived out exemplary life of a Christian community in the most holistic sense. They were learning church. They were loving church. They were lifting church. They were leading people to God church. As a commentator says, the second chapter, uh, the, the second chapter of Acts ended with a rather cozy picture of the church gathered for teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, it is so easy for us fall in love with the first church like a Jerusalem church and feel romantic about the good old church. Guess what happened to them after the cozy ending of chapter 2? For the rest of the book, conflicts came to the followers of the way. Persecution began. As you will, as you will see, persecution is a major theme in the book of Acts, especially persecution from Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council happened over and over again. Sanhedrin mentioned 24 times in the New Testament and 18 times in the book of Acts. In the Acts, Peter and John has to face the threat of Sanhedrin and then all apostles and then deacons uh, Stephen and finally Paul, they all had to stand up before Sanhedrin. In other words, persecution was in the DNA of all authentic followers of Christ in the Bible and history. Paul, at the last chapter of his letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said this, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Commitment to God causes a conflict with the world. If you don't see any conflict in your Christian life, don't get so happy or excited. Someone said, devil doesn't persecute those who are making a godly difference in the world. So, for Christians, suffering, especially, not just any suffering, for the sake of Christ and the gospel, is actually very inherent, intrinsic to our Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great uh, martyr and theologian during the Nazi era in 1937, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, said this, Suffering is a badge of true Christians. Disciple is not above his master. Luther reckoned the suffering among the marks of a true church, one of their memoranda drawn up in preparation for Oxford Confession similarly, defines a church as a community of those who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. It is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. One of the main reasons that Christians in all time have respected and looked up to the early church was because their sacrificial endurance and steadfast evangelistic fervor inspired a persecution. So, an English evangelical pastor uh, named uh, Leonard Ravenhill, actually he is a mentor of uh, 
Now that Mo mentioned uh, all the singing, praising all the uh, pra uh, old songs, some of you uh, remember the name of Keith Green. He was a mentor of Keith Green. Anyway, he said this, Early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, today's church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. So today, I want us to see how the followers of the way received the persecution and how they responded. I entitled today's message, The First Persecution, by which I mean that this was not the last one, but more to come. The reason I'm sharing the story of a first persecution with, with you is to inspire ourselves to find God's presence and follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit instead of a fearing pandemic and fussing about our weariness of being stuck in the lockdown. So once again, before I go further, let me remind you that a persecution and suffering for Christ is a very, very promised and experienced reality of Christians. And then in people like us who are living in a country like the United States of America, where freedom of religion is so much, we often forget. And the Willie Jennings, uh, African American theologian that I, you know, I, I love and I quote, I, 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 you know, I read from time to time, he said this: "Real preaching and authentic teaching is inextricably." bound to real criminality. Look at the Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr. They all preached the gospel and they were condemned as illegal and persecuted. Christians of a modern West have never really grasped our deep connection to the criminal mind. You know, Christians were deemed as illegal for 300 years until Constantine, the emperor, Roman emperor, changed the law. So let us recognize that persecution is still reality, even in our century, even in our life, in our 2020. Because if we don't see it, don't believe that we are out of it. Actually, it's increasing. The most recent report of a voice of america about north korea they said due to the pandemic the public execution is down it's not uh, and people are less you know congregated less than before but they still executed several people and then including those who, who traded sold the uh, k-pop songs and dramas to in the cd form and uh, what a memory memory card as well as Two Christians who found to have a Bible in their house. So if you're in North Korea and you hated somebody, you just you know buy a Bible and they write the person's name and they hide in their house and they call the police and you can get rid of your enemy. Can you believe that? Even 2020, we are living in a world of a violent reaction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me read today's text, and let's really dig in. Today's text is Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31. 
On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made a heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain? The kings of earth rise up and rulers bend together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threat and enable your servant to speak your word with a great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they, met, they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit spoke the word of God boldly. In this story, I find the three remarkable inspiration that teach us how to fight the adverse situation. The three key words that I want us to remember is a rematch, rematch, rave, rave, and request. Okay? Rematch, rave, and request. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. The persecution, once again, came as a result of early Christians' obedience to God. When, you, when we obey God, we have to remember good things and bad things happen together. Don't be naive that God will automatically bless you only with the blessings when you obey. That's, what, that's, the, that's the teaching of a false gospel called the prosperity gospel. Even in our modern world, there is a evil and idolatry. I'm glad that uh, Laurel mentions uh, idols in the prayer. You know, when we follow God, there will be opposition. And usually, in many times it happened in the family. When your family members are not believers, your decision for God will usually create a conflict. I experienced it in my life and I saw it in many people's life. So some of you who don't you know, see any, you know, uh, once again, you're surrounded, you, you're living in a godly family and you don't have any conflict for your you know, spiritual decision, praise God for that. Now, let me briefly say why and then where Peter and John were when they were released. Acts chapter 3, uh, we, uh, we, two remarkable things happened. First, Peter and John went to temple together for the daily afternoon prayer. Jewish people pray three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. And uh, Peter and John, they never prayed together. In John discipleship, you will learn more about their relationship. They used to be a fierce competitors before the resurrection of Christ. But after resurrection, they become a faithful companions who became a prayer buddies. 
and praying together shows a you know great intimacy, camaraderie together. That's what you know. Uh, that's that's what I was encouraged by house churches these days that we pray a lot more or closer than before. Now, when they about to enter into the temple court, they saw a lame beggar at the entrance, and he was born lame, and he was about 40 years old. At that moment, Peter felt a powerful compassion of the Holy Spirit for this congenital crippled beggar. Why? He is somebody so near to God's temple all his life, but because of his handicap, he couldn't put us food into the temple. He, couldn't ne- he never worshipped God. He's there to just make a daily living. By the way, this cripple at the gate of the temple sometimes reminds me of children at the church. Are they really worshipping, enjoying a worshipping just as an adult? They're so near to God's kingdom, but do they really, really participating in the heart of God? This cripple, he was near the temple but never experienced God. And finally today, Peter gave him an incredible good news. Silver and gold I have none, but all I have in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And immediately healed and able to walk. You know how much he was happy? If you look at the Acts chapter 3, he went into the temple court with Peter and John for the first time, praising while he was jumping. And everybody in the temple realized who that person was. And they were amazed and stunned. And about 5,000 people came to believe in Jesus. That's when Jewish authorities sent soldiers to arrest Peter and John. Now, the people who interrogated Peter and John were mentioned chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. The elders and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other high, high priest family. They were the Sanhedrin and its prominent members, and we saw them before in the illegal trial of Jesus. Those who persecuted Jesus now are persecuting the followers of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? That's what I meant by rematch. This is a rematch. Do you like a rematch? I heard the people who saw the last dance in ESPN are now you know, fantasizing about rematch between uh, Michael Jordan's Bulls and uh, whatever their favorite NBA team, such as uh, Stephen Curry's uh, Golden State Warrior. I think a warrior should be happy that Michael Jordan retired. And, uh, you know, a good story has an element of a rematch. Look at the classical Kung Fu movie. It always is a revenge or a vindication motif. At the beginning of the Kung Fu movie, you see uh, the the, the main, main character, Mr. Chang, you killed my father. I'm Shaolin, the son of Mr. Lee. And then he couldn't beat. He was miserably beaten. And then found his master or secret book of Kung Fu and retrain. And then finally rematch. 
Mr. Chang, you killed my father. I'm Shaolin. And the son of Mr. Lee. And then, you know, the vindication. Today's story is one of the sweetest rematch in history. Peter, the coward Peter, became a courageous follower of Jesus Christ. And he gave a knockout punch combination. He said, we heal this man in the name of Jesus, whom you rejected and crucified, but whom God raised from the dead and chose to be cornerstone of his true temple. Salvation is found in no one else except Jesus. After the Peter's reply, Sanhedrin was impressed not only with his word, but with his courage. And they recognized the courage of Peter and John to somebody they know. Who? That's the Jesus. They say, they've been recognized. Verse, verse 13 said, they, uh, they were astonished and they took note. These men had been with Jesus. You know what they were saying? They were saying, OMG, we saw this kind of courage before. These guys remind of somebody we tried a few months ago at nighttime. That's a Jesus of Nazareth. Now we have a two just like him and more. You know what people, I have a question. What, what do the people notice about us, about you, about me? You know, we all reflect uh, with uh, somebody that we uh, live together. Our association with uh, someone changes for better and worse. For instance, if you know my wife, Jamie, and if you talk to her for a while, you begin to notice the very interesting English lingo that she has. Jamie speaks a Yankee, or Texas called the Yankee, English of the 70s. If there is a historian of a, of a researchable oral history of America, they should record Jamie. Because Jamie came to the United States uh, when she was 10 in the early 1970, and her language came from TV. So she got all, she is an oral recorder of uh, the common English in, in, in 1970s. And uh, one of uh, her common expression of OMG is a man alive. When she's excited, she said, man alive, you know. And uh, all of us, we copy, we, we got that. So we saw man alive. And then just a few years ago, actually a couple years ago, a friend of mine in Bay Area, they told me that the, uh, they were very gracious, you know, uh, church friends, that uh, they helped uh, my oldest daughter, Mariel, to find the first job in Stanford. And not only that, they graciously housed her for a year. And they have a twin. Um, and, and then one day, the Caroline, the uh, wife, went to the teacher's conference, meeting with conference with teacher, and then the teacher said, Caroline, where did your children, Isaac and Kaylee, learn this expression, man alive? Ever since they're saying man alive, our entire class is saying man alive. And then, you know, so Caroline was saying that, Pastor Paul, now my kids are speaking a man alive just like Mariel did, and, you know, so we realize that man alive is spreading like a virus. 
You know, we all reflect somebody that we associate with, somebody we like. Who do we reflect these days? You know, when we reflect Jesus, we win any rematch in life. Verse 18, they called uh, disciples again and command them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes. But Peter and John replied, uh-uh, they to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter and John were saying that all we do is a keeping the law of Moses for bearing a truthful witness. To follow your decision is to bear a false witness about God. And also it is a breaking the ninth commandment. Are you asking us to disobey God and disregard the law? You be the judge. This was a knockout rematch. Now, second inspiration comes from uh, this story is uh, in their prayer, particularly the first part of their prayer, verse 24. When they heard this, whole church raised a voice together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord, you made our heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. Their first thing they prayed is a praising God. They are raving about God. The word, the Greek word for sovereign Lord is actually one word, despata, from which we got despot. Absolute, you know, controlled, you know, ruler, despot. They're saying, Lord, you made everything and you are the master of everything. And here is a very, very interesting and important observation that we need to make. First thing the followers of the way were praying was not about their problem. They are not panicking. They are not panicking. They're, oh, Sanhedrin is about to send, you know, whatever soldiers and they're going to arrest us and then torture and kill us and what. That's not what they were saying. They are saying, Lord, we want to praise you. For you are in control of everything. We know power above the power of a Sanhedrin. You are greater than anything in this world. You are bigger than my problem. That's what their prayer started. So prayer always starts with a praise. This is a very important. The more you praise God, the more you become God conscious and observed in His greatness, wisdom, and faithfulness, and love. Praise reminds us of all that God is able to do and of great things He already done. So if you start your prayer with a problem, guess what? Your prayer will become more self-centered and less God-focused. As a result, our prayer will be shallow and ineffective. It sounds more like a self-pity of a warrior's. I like the, uh, uh, the quote from the O. Hallesby, a Norwegian Lutheran theologian. O. Hallesby actually said this, Praise lies upon a higher plane than thanksgiving. When I give thanks, my thoughts still circle around myself to some extent. But in praise, my soul ascends to self-forgetting, 
adoration, seeing and praising only the majesty and the power of God and His grace and redemption. This is why in the house church, we all start with a praising report and then prayer request. Yes, the order is irreversible. And also, it's so every prayer too. You know the common Christian prayer? You know, prayer of act, A-C-T-S, it's an acronym. You start with the adoration, and then you confess, and you give thanksgiving, and finally you give a supplication. A-C-T-S, acts prayer. I think it's absolutely right. We need to start with the praising. You know, sign of a good house church is that people thoughtfully share their praises. And the few house churches I know that is, I feel like, oh no, this is a, a, a downer, or you know, is that when somebody starts that, oh, how was your week? Oh, uh, not much. You know what? I mean, if you're a child of uh, Bill Gates, or a child of, Barack, you know, Barack Obama in the White House when he was president. And if they say, my week was okay, I'll be very, very upset. I'll slap them. If I were them, I'll say, what do you mean? You have so much resources in your hand, and your week was nothing but just ordinary? My children can say that, but not children of God. You know, it's offensive to God. God loves us. He created everything for us. You know, some theologians said every shade of uh, green, every shade of grass and every color in this world God created is to please us. It's absolutely right. You know what I'm praying these days? It came to me just the other day. I was meditating. Uh, I, I was somehow came across in the Psalm. You know the last word in the book of Psalm? Psalm 150, verse 6. Anybody knows the last word in the book of Psalm? All right, Jane, show it to them. Let everything that has a praise, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That actually last word is hallelujah. But let everything as a breath, praise the Lord. Because every breath came from God, the creator. You didn't create the breath. God gave the breath to you. Genesis said, God breathed his breath to whatever, the matter, and they became a living soul. Every breath, the you and I breath, according to Psalm 150, it came from God. So every, the reason God gave a breath, so that we will enjoy his creation that he made for us. You know what that means? You and I, we are living so-called a sacramental reality. Yeah, write it down somewhere, sacramental reality. We are not just existing in some kind of natural you know, world, accidental, you know, natural world. We are actually living providential world. Everything that we see and hear and feel is made by God. Even though we are existing 2020 in pandemic, we should recognize that we are endowed in divine world created by God. So these days I'm praying, my prayer to God is, God, help me to remember that I'm not just a living, but I'm living 
in the sacramental reality. I'm living in the sacred space and time that you made for me. Help me not forget that I'm surrounded by your sacramental you know, blessings. So, I have a challenge and application for everybody for this week. Hopefully, when you come to the next, Sun, next Friday at House Church, you all can say, this week, I learned to praise for, I learned to praise God for, and then you fill in the blank. I learned this week, I learned to praise God for, and you fill the, you fill the blank. Early church, they were focusing on God. And they said, no matter what kind of trouble the world is throwing at us, our God is a maker and creator, is a Lord and master. One who is in us, with us, is a greater than one in the world. The final inspiration in this story is their request. What did they request? They didn't ask God to protect them. Look at the verse 29. Lord, consider their threat and enable your servants to speak your word with a great boldness. Stretch out your hands to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They didn't ask God to change their circumstance. Rather, they asked God to charge up their commitment to preach the gospel more boldly than before. You know, their prayer is actually very similar to uh, another person's prayer in the Old Testament. Hezekiah prayed a similar prayer in the Second King chapter 19. You can look at it later. But second, you know, Hezekiah also starts with the praising God, you know, for creator of everything. But one difference, Hezekiah prayed for protection from the Assyrian king's invasion, whereas disciples of Jesus, they pray for boldness to preach the gospel. Now, they are not being ignorant. They are not being a triumphalist. They are being very realist. They knew the dangers they are facing. That's why first thing they say, Lord, consider the threat that we are receiving. They're saying we are scared. But they also said, the Lord, even though we are scared, we want to do your will. Give us the courage and boldness to do your will. Once again, courage is not absence of a fear, but presence of a something more important and greater than what we worry about. And boldness. That's the Luke's favorite word. It appears 16 times in the New Testament and eight times appeared in the book of Luke and book of Acts. And Luke actually ends book of Acts with the word boldness. So Acts chapter 28 verse 31 says, The Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Unhindered boldness. That's literally how the story ends. And the word boldness in Greek is a very interesting. So a short word study. It's a paresia. Paresia. It's a compound word. It's a pas. Do we, did I send it to Jane? I, 
Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, Jane. I, I haven't sent it. I'm sorry. I, it's uh, my, 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 my oversight. But anyway, paresia is a pass. Paresia is a, is a Greek word. is a pass all and resis. From re yes, resis, which means speech. You know, rhetoric came from the resis. So Greek word for boldness, paresia, came from simply literally means all speech. Whoever you speak, you speak with the same tone. That means all speech comes out of same confidence and you know, cons in, in a consistent, you know, steadfast you know, enthusiasm. That is a boldness. They ask, Lord, help us to preach the gospel, not only good times, but even bad times. In all times, help us to preach the gospel with boldness. Have you seen an inspiration, an inspiring example of boldness or someone who, a bold person, someone who inspired you? Let me show you one uh, sh uh, short example of that. His name is General Anthony McAuliffe. He was a, a commander of a 101st Airborne Division during the Battle of a Bulge. Battle of a Bulge was a counteroffensive of uh, Germans during the uh, World War II. In uh, 1944, Allied landed in Normandy and they are going in, they are pushing into the Germany and they're right at the border of uh, Belgium and Germany. At the, during the Christmas time, Germans, Nazis, they did a major surprising counteroffensive and the Allied were completely took by, you know, taken by surprise. And they were surrounded in the town called Baston. And there, German uh, commander sent a letter, that is a letter, uh, for General uh, McAuliffe to surrender. So th actually, we have that letter. So this letter uh, said this. To the USA commander of an encircled town of Baston, the fortune of the war is changing. This time, the US forces in and near Baston has been completely encircled by strong German armored unit. More German armored units has crossed the river, blah, 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 and uh, we are very close. There is only one possibility to save the encircled USA troops from total annihilation. That is an honorable surrender of an encircled town. If this proposal should be rejected, one German art artillery corps and the six heavy battalions are ready to annihilate the USA troops in and near the Baston. The order of firing will be given immediately after two hours term. Sincerely, German commander. And uh, General McAuliffe, when he received that, uh, uh, that, that letter, he just crumbled it and threw it in the uh, wastebasket, waste, waste I mean, uh, trash can, and he just said one, you know, one word, ah, nut. Ah, nut. And then he didn't say anything. And then, you know, US, his, his officer said, Oh, we need to send, send, uh, send back the reply. And then a very smart, you know, uh, uh, chief of staff said, let's just write his word. So this is a letter they wrote to German commander, nut, from American commander. And German officer received the letter. He didn't understand. So he asked this uh, American officer, 
what this message meant. And then the American officer, Colonel Harper, said, in plain English, it means go to hell. That inspired the American troops greatly. They kept fighting until the General Patton's Force Armor Division broke through and rescued all of them. You know, in life, we have this kind of inspiring people with a boldness. What about in kingdom of God? What about in our house church? What about in our family? What about in our church forest? Let me close the conclusion. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke the word of God boldly. The shaking of the Spirit was not simply a sign of power, but it was a sign of a pleasure. God's excitement was evident, evident here. Here, God was saying when they prayed to God, they, Lord, give, help us to preach more boldly. You know what God was telling them? Yes! Amen to your prayer! That's what God was saying. And then we see the holy chain of reaction of praises and God's pleasures again in the following verse 32 to 34. Let me just read quickly. All the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With a great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. You know, we saw the same conclusion uh, before in the Acts chapter 2, verse 44 to 45. Why are we seeing the same thing and why does it look record the same thing? You know, anytime when Christians share their resources together in love, sacrificially, generously for one another, you have to remember, every time is rare. It pleases God so much. It's worth being noted. On that note, I want to once again thank you, everybody who's giving faithfully and consistently. You know, I, I, I made a, a, you know, our March offering went down. Our April offering went up high and they made up. Much more, our Forest Family Relief Fund is very, you know, we, 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 are, we are increasing the relief fund. So we are helping others, our own. You know, I like this conclusion better than the first time in the Acts chapter 2. Because Acts chapter 2, there was no persecution. Acts chapter 4, in the midst of a persecution and uncertain future, the people of the way were walking close, closer and together than before in impending persecution and violent opposition. So, this is the people that we are following. They faithfully follow the way of God in Jesus Christ. And God called us to follow Him again in our time, in our generation, even in this pandemic, with the courage and boldness and praise and God will give us wisdom and power to do His will. Let's pray.